Mark 10, 2 through 16, English Standard Version, page 938. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the dis disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Amen. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That is the question that Dr. Johnson chose to begin his chapter on power, sex, and money. And I thought, what an interesting place to talk about power, sex, and money and what Jesus taught about it. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That question is a trap. We know that, don't we? It's a trap, Jesus. Run. But it's more than a trap. It's actually a very complicated and complex trap. And I want to walk you through the setting so that we can really understand why it's such a terrible situation, terrible trap for Jesus. The setting. It is the Roman Empire. Now, I know it's after lunch. This is a history lesson. Some of you are going to doze off immediately, please. Active listening. We were told by our gracious host, Becky. If you begin to doze off, I'll just call you out. Is that okay? All right. The world that Jesus is living in is ruled by the Roman Empire. How did the Roman Empire come to rule the world? By following a very simple rule. The rule is this. The powerful survive. The strong survive. The weak are eliminated or they're enslaved, subjugated. The Romans ruled the world by conquering it, but they didn't call it conquering. They called it pacifying. And the Pax Romana, this pacifying, looked like this. Josephus, the historian, describes it this way. The Roman army would move into a village and crucify all of the leaders, murder all of them, sometimes in different positions because they got bored and wanted some amusement. Sometimes they would do it just to instill terror, even if the people they were crucifying had committed no crime or sedition against the empire. Why? Because when people are afraid, they will do what you say, won't they? And this is true in religion, it's true in politics, it's true in broken family systems. When people are afraid, they'll do what you say. The followers of Jesus were really acquainted with this. They had lived through a lot of this stuff. Josephus tells us that Roman 
Roman generals had swept through all of Palestine. One named Cassius had enslaved 30,000 people in an area known as Magdala. We know that area. We know Mary Magdalene. These are people, people, people that Jesus knew. They had lived through this. Another general, Varus, he destroyed a city we know, Emmaus, hunted down 2,000 men from the city of Emmaus, crucified them all. This is Galilee. All of Jesus' followers knew the power of the Roman Empire. The strong survive, the weak are eliminated. Who ran this empire? All right. So I spent some time on Facebook or InstaFace, whatever the thing is now, and I found some pictures of the people who ran the empire. We're going to learn a little bit about them today. Julius Caesar, you know this guy. Yeah, um, good-looking man. He, um, so Julius Caesar is, is known as having began the transition from the Roman Republic to a Roman Empire. Why? Because he was tired of ruling the empire, the republic, with people sharing power with the Senate. So he said, enough of the Senate. Let's begin to rule this thing the way I want to rule it. That was power. So he began to murder all of the senators. Eventually, they murdered him. His son, Octavius, adopted son, completed the process of eliminating the Senate, and he declared himself, uh, changed his name to Augustus. We celebrate his, his month this month right now. Augustus, did you know that? We do this in honor of Augustus Caesar. We probably should change the name, shouldn't we? Some of this is, for some of you, this is the most valuable thing you learned today. July, Julius Caesar. Augustus, August, Augustus Caesar. You want more? Janice of the January, Janice the, anyway, it doesn't important. Anyway, let's go back to it. Um, so uh, Octavian is important, uh, Augustus, because um, he sort of founded this cult that called the Roman Empire emperors, um, not just humans who had risen to power through horrible deeds, but gods on earth. On the day of his coronation, he said that there was a star rising to the heavens that was his father, Julius, becoming a god, going home to Zeus, and so he was, in fact, the son of God on earth. <laughs> that was awesome. I love that stuff. Um, so then, you know this man, Tiberius. Oh, Tiberius, we know him. This isn't the Jesus story, so you should recognize that name, and if you didn't, you should go back and read the Bible. Luke, beginning Luke, Tiberius. Um, violent stuff that would take too long to tell you about is how he came to power. But what's important is the, the person who followed him, I don't have a picture of him, Claudius. Claudius had a wife, and he had a son with her. The people hated her, so he got rid of her and married another woman, Agrippina, who had a son already. His name was Nero. But the son that he had with his previous wife was the heir. So his next, his new wife, Agrippina, had his son murdered and him murdered and named his son the emperor Nero. We know him. Yeah, evil. Evil. Um, Nero um, wanted to marry a girl. He met. His mom said no. So he had her killed. Married the girl anyway. And allegedly threw a party while Rome was burning in AD 64. You know these stories. And later invited the public to a viewing of his new garden lit by the bodies of this Eastern, people of this Eastern strange cult called the way of Jesus, the Christians. He blamed them for the fire. Vespasian um, and his son Titus. We know Titus. Here's how we know Titus. Titus sent a contingent an army to Palestine to put down the Jewish rebellion once and for all in AD 70. They destroyed the temple. 
and they were led by a man named Domitian. Domitian the general came by sea. It was a sea invasion, which they had not expected or seen before, which is why the Jews called him the beast that comes from the water. This stuff sound familiar? Active listening, active listening. See, Domitian, when he came to power after murdering everyone around him, it's all, it's all just rivers of blood running through Rome. It, it was a horrible, horrible, violent empire. When Domitian comes to power, he declares himself Lord and God now. No more of this son of God business. No more. I'm Lord now. And from there on, he demanded as a sign of patriotism and a sign of allegiance to the emperor that every time he conducted a transaction in the market. You did it in his name. Which is why the, the people of Jesus rebelled against it. They said, no, we, we have a Lord. His name is Jesus. And which is why it was hard for them to do transactions in the marketplaces. They refused to say, Caesar is Lord. Does this sound familiar? Yes. So Domitian had this, this man, apostle of Jesus, exiled to an island, Patmos, because he was preaching this revolutionary it was sedition against the empire. No, you're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this man goes and writes about Domitian. He calls him the beast. He, say, he says this about him. Babylon, the great mother of harlots, drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of martyrs of Jesus. How, how interesting that they're writing about things that are happening to them right then. How did the emperors, these violent, violent but powerful people, Maintain the peace. Bread and circus. They would give people bread. And they would hold circus. And the circus is another cycle of violence they entertain themselves with. Bread. To keep them happy. The emperor gives us bread. Which is why it's so subversive for little Christians and their little communities. To break bread together. And to say Jesus is Lord. Because they're saying in a sense. This bread is shared. It doesn't come from the emperors. The bread that we share together. It's subversion. You maintain a large army that, um, that you place in the entire empire from England to India. It takes nine months to cross the whole empire. So you also need local people. You need a loyal local guy to maintain the peace for you. And we know who the local guy in Palestine was. Herod. All right. Evil. Powerful but evil. And I'd like to walk you through Herod's. Um, so, in case you're wondering, what is, Sam, what does this have to do with the question, the, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Oh, we're coming to it. <laughs> Active listen, stay with me. It's, this is going to be awesome. Herod the Great is the reason why this question is being asked. Okay? Herod married a woman named Doris. Now, I had to learn how to pronounce all these names. Doris is easy. I know you're like, well, Doris? You know how to say that? I know. But because I had to learn how to pronounce every other name that's coming, you are also going to learn this with me, so I'm going to keep you awake. Right? Say Doris. Pretty easy. Okay. So Herod married a woman named Doris. They had a son named Antipater. Okay. Excellent. Some people say Antipater, Antipater. Is it Antipater? I'll look this up. Um, Antipater was loved by the people. And, and so the news around Palestine was we can't wait until Herod is dead so Antipater can become the new ruler of Palestine. So Herod had Doris and Antipater killed. 
done. Found another wife. Marry me the first. Say, marry me. Exactly. And you know, terrible things are about to happen because she's the first. <laughs> he had a son with her named Alexander and another one named Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Yeah, perfect, excellent. Um, Aristobulus married a woman named Berenice and they had a daughter named Herodias. Oh, that sounds familiar. So say Berenice. That's a common name, excellent. And Herodias. Excellent, yes. The people loved Alexander. And so Herod had him, Aristobulus, his brother, and Mariamne the first killed. Matter of fact, the, the rumor around Palestine was, and the saying around Palestine was, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his own children. Herod found another Mariamne, and so we call her Mariamne the second. He had a son with her named Herod Philip. He remains alive, and this story gets really interesting from here on out. Stay with me. I know you're probably bored right now, but stay with me. Herod finds another woman to marry. Her name is Malthake. Say Malthake. Sounds like we're cursing a little bit. It's okay. Malthake. <laughs> they had a son named Archelaus. Say Archelaus. And a son they named Herod Antipas. Antipas. Okay. He also married a woman named Cleopatra, not that one. This is Cleopatra of Jerusalem, unfortunately. Not the famous one. All right, meanwhile, let's get back to this side of the, the tree. Herod Philip, remember Herod Philip down here? You see Herod Philip? Where is he? There he is. Herod Philip one day looks at his niece Herodias and goes, <laughs> my niece is beautiful. And yes, he makes her his wife. And they became husband and wife and uncle and niece. It's kind of awkward. They move together to Rome. They have a daughter in Rome named Salome. Do you know her, Salome? We're going to see her dancing in a minute, but just wait. Herod the Great, while they're in Rome, he dies. And before dying, actually, he splits, he splits his realm into three different kingdoms. He gives one to his son, Archelaus, one to his son Herod Antipas, and one to Philip. And he, lives, he leaves Herod Philip in, in Rome as the representative of Palestine in Rome. Why is that important? Because of the following. One day, Herod Antipas um, marries Phasilus. She's not listed up there. Um, she's the daughter of one of the Nabataean kings, a neighboring, a neighboring kingdom that was always threatening Judea. So they're always at war. And so Herod figures out how to make peace with his people. He marries a daughter of that king. Her name is Faceless. I know it sounds like faceless, but she had a face. Married her for political advantage. It's all maneuvering here. During the next year, he goes to visit his brother and his sister-in-law, niece, slash niece, in Rome. Falls in love with her kidnaps her, brings her back to Palestine, forces a divorce from his niece and his brother, <laughs> and marries her, divorces Faisalus, the daughter of the neighboring king. Neighboring king gets angry, declares war on Judea. War and... Are you with me still? Is it? Is this... I mean, am I, have I lost you? Okay, good. My friend... By the way, my friend... <laughs> 
Uh, my friend Craig Hadley put this together here for me, so I, I hope you can follow it. Um, so war ensues, and now we're getting to the question. Trust me, we're getting to the question. This war is fought over what? Over sex. Over adultery. And over power. Isn't it? And by the way, they lost this war, which is why Herod has to send to, the, to Rome for help. Please help me. This king is destroying Judea. So, and the, and the help never comes, by the way. Thousands and thousands of men of Judea have died defending Herod and his illicit marriage to Herodias. Are you with me? But they're all too afraid to name this great sin he's committed. Why? Because he holds complete power over them and he can unleash horrible, horrible punishment on them. Enter John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has no problem naming the sin. He says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's just not lawful. So Herodias gets upset at him and says to her husband, kill him. He says, no, it's not politically good. He has followers, so we're going to keep him alive. Let's just, let's just put him in prison. So Herodias comes up with this brilliant plan, sends her daughter, Salome, remember her, Salome, to dance. And this is not tap dancing or ballet. This is, yeah, you got the picture. And when she's done with this dance, all of the guests are all, whoa. And, and Herod says to her, hey, what do you want? And she says, exactly what my mom told me to ask you for, for John's head on a platter. And it's done. They bring him, they bring John's head on a platter. Now, four chapters later, the question is asked of Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Do you understand why this question is not just about marriage, divorce. It's not about adultery. It is massive. They're testing Jesus and they've given him no way out. This is the great gigantic sex and power scandal of their day. And the Pharisees are less interested in Jesus' response about marriage and divorce. They want him dead. If he says divorce is okay, the religious court will have him killed. If he says divorce is not okay, the Herodian courts will have him killed. And Jesus looks around at this audience because they asked him in public. He looks at the mothers who have lost their sons in this war against the neighboring king, all for Herod, who could not contain his sexual appetite. He looks at sons and daughters of these men who have lost their fathers he looks at a nation decimated by a stupid war. He looks around at them and understands that the empire is really what's, what's wrong here. The power structures are, is really what's wrong here. He faces it all knowing my cousin has died because he's named this evil. And what does he say? Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. This answer and many other answers Jesus will give will lead him to the cross. It's not just about divorce and remarriage. It's actually about speaking truth 
through the systems, truth to power. And this is an aside that, that's important. He says, he commits adultery against her, which is an innovation in thinking about adultery in his day. Because adultery could only be committed against another man. He's saying adultery can also be committed against a woman. She's not just property, she's your wife. It is unlawful for you to divorce your wife and marry another woman. And, and you know, as, as, as much as we talk about this about, and make it just about an issue of divorce and remarriage and all that, it's literally less about that. It's Jesus naming Herod and his system of abusive power. Let's remember that anytime we use this text to, to talk about divorce and remarriage. We've done great damage to people when we say to them, um, well, Jesus said about you. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about you. He was talking about Herod on that day, wasn't he? And this insignificant corner of the massive Roman Empire, there's a miracle happening. A poor Palestinian peasant is saying, you are evil and you, you oppressed people are blessed. Not those in power not those who oppress you. They're not the blessed ones. You are blessed. You who mourn. You who are poor. You who are meek. You who are tired of injustice. You who hunger for righteousness. The rules of this kingdom are different. They're opposite the power structures of the empire. Empire is about control and fear. This kingdom is about truth and about love. Empire is about crushing this kingdom is about love that turns the other cheek. Empire is about bringing bondage. This kingdom brings freedom. It's here to liberate you. Empire is about oppressing. This kingdom is about setting you free. In case you're wondering, see, this scene right here is not just Jesus against Pharisees. It's Jesus against the empire. Jesus against the way the whole world is. It's Jesus, it's Jesus saying, I'm headed to a cross, yes. And I'm about to demonstrate to you what real power is. Bill Johnson says, towards the end of his book, only when the disciples see Jesus hanging on Calvary's cross did they begin to understand. Only when they ponder the cross do we, when we ponder the cross, do we begin to understand. Only when we ponder this shame, shameful way to die, this, this torturous way to die, do we begin to understand that love is what defeats this kind of evil. That evil is not overcome with more evil. That violence is not overcome with more violence. That intolerance is not overcome with more intolerance. That betrayal is not overcome with more betrayal. That mocking is not overcome with better mocking. Jesus never said, yeah, you're laughing right now? Wait, I get the last laugh. On the day of judgment when the smell of burning flesh, your flesh is wafting through the air, you'll hear a laugh in his mind. You give me time. I make time, actually. There's a time coming when I will laugh. Mocking is not overcome with better mocking. Hurt is not healed when we hurt other people. A bomb is not overcome with a better bomb and a bigger bomb. Jesus is humbling himself to a Roman spike. He's telling the truth knowing I'm going to die on a cross. 
That is power. The only power that actually changes things. And it's no, see, there's no accident and no coincidence that this section of Mark ends with Jesus saying, when you're like kids, when you're like children, then you'll really understand what the kingdom is about. I have a buddy, his name is Owen. He calls me Pastor Silly. Because after church, every week, I chase him around going, Rawr! and he's like, Pastor Silly. He thinks it makes me mad, but it doesn't. I just think it's funny. But I got to keep think, making think that is, you know, my man, we'll get you. Owen's five years old now. We had a picnic. We're all outside at church. And, you know, it's, it's Southern California, so it's always scorching hot outside. Um, the church people who organized the potluck, they, um, they brought all of these containers full of water and they put ice in it. So towards the end of the potluck, uh, Owen, um, he founded a criminal activity little gang of five-year-olds. They all got cups. Here's what they were doing. They would, they would go and get the, the water with ice from the coolers and they would chase people around and throw it on them. Oh, they thought it was great fun. <laughs> and we were hot, so it was like kind of funny. Like, ah, and you had to act like you hated it, like you were fake running so they would stay engaged in the game because, you know, if you acted like you enjoyed it, then it's no fun for them. So I did that one time. I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And then they dumped this water on me, and it was so cold it hurt. And I see Owen. Owen goes back to the cooler. Opens the cooler. Great, a great, like just cost to his little buddy. Ah, opens the cooler. Gets a cup. Manages to dip it in there. Gets this little cup of water, and he's walking towards me like, ah, I'm going to get your bastard salad. I'm, I'm just anticipating this moment, thinking, am I going to let him do this? The last one hurt. I don't think so. So he gets closer and closer, and it took him like three or four minutes. Finally gets to me. And as he's standing right in front of me, about to dump this little cup of cold water on me, I did a terrible thing. Yeah. I looked at Owen, and he looked at me, and I flipped the coin. <laughs> It was awesome. This water, man, if you could see it in slow motion, all over his face. And when the water finally cleared from his eyes, he looked at me, his little lips curled down. And then I felt so horrible. What have I done? And these are the words that Owen uttered to me. He pointed at me, he said, You're mean, Pastor Silly, you're mean. It's the truth. He spoke truth to power. Yeah, he did. And then he turned to go, and I said, Owen, I'm sorry, buddy, I'm sorry. And then he turned, came back to me, and gave me a hug. And then he ran away. It was done. And I was left with this thought. Is this what Jesus means? The kingdom belongs to those Kids who understand what power is. This kid is powerful. They display power that we need, we followers of Jesus need. Name, name, name evil. Be truthful. And then accept it and move on. Accept your calling. Accept what you lived through and move on like Jesus did. May we come to know this Jesus 
who answers more than a question about divorce and adultery and remarriage, but answers the great question humans have been asking. What is power? Power is found in Jesus and the cross. Amen.